0: Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I am your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I am joined by Professor Mark Humphreys. Mark Humphreys is Chair in Computational Neuroscience at the University of Nottingham. He is the founding editor of The Spike, an online publication available at Medium.com. Today we are going to discuss his new book, The Spike, An Epic Journey Through the Brain in 2.1 Seconds. The book explores how blips of electric voltages that researchers call spikes are born in the brain, how they are transmitted, how they travel through the brain where billions of neurons liaise with one another using these spikes and how this epic journey of spikes leads to action. Mark, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps.
1: Thank you, Maseem. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure.
0: Let us first try to understand the fundamental building block of the brain, a single neuron. Uh, Talk us through the structure of a single neuron. So,
1: obviously, the neurons are the basic building block of the brain. And... uh, Pretty much every neuron has the same three components so uh, every neuron like every cell in your body ha- has a body it has a soma um, but sticking out of that body are two two important parts so we have coming out of the often we draw at the top coming out of the top is some kind of uh it's a dendrite which is a long tree-like structure which the, den- the neuron stretches out into the rest of the brain and it's stretching that out into the rest of the brain because it's it's the part of the neuron that gathers inputs to that neuron so All those inputs arrive on that that dendrite, which is this long branch structure. And those inputs uh, are pulled together into that body where they're summed up. And when that that body comes sticking out of it, the other side has a long cable called the axon. And it's that axon which that neuron has to send its signals down to communicate to the rest of the brain. Um, Sometimes those axons are really short. Sometimes they're enormously long. So, for example, the axon from the... A uh, spinal motor neuron in a giraffe to its foot is about three meters long whereas the axon body itself is probably only a couple of hundred microns across so the axon can be dramatically larger than any other part of the neuron even though it's a really tiny fine cable
0: the spike uh, as you call it in the book is neurons voltage that fluctuates until it reaches the tipping point at uh, this tipping point, the voltage increases rapidly and then crashes back down before returning to normality. The whole process takes uh, about a millisecond. How does a spike emerge in a single neuron?
1: Yeah, so the so the, the spike is, if you like, it is, as you said, so the actual thing we call a spike is that rapid jump and crash voltage. That's the thing we call the spike. Leading up to that spike is this, uh, every neuron has a voltage at its at its body, and indeed throughout its structure, but that's the body we're interested in. And that voltage is flickering up and down as the inputs arrive. And as it does flicker up and down, at some point, as you say, it hits a tipping point. So what's going on is those voltages are being, um, being pushed up and down by the inputs arriving. But when it hits this certain uh, value increase, big enough increase to hit this tipping point, what happens is a set of ion channels in the body of the neuron open up. So what immediately happens is some sodium channels open up. And the voltage of the neuron is, is created by the fact that there are certain um, ions on the outside and ions on the inside. And the difference in the charge from the outside and the inside is what's setting up the voltage. So when these ion channels open up, the sodium ions all flood in, and the voltage of the neuron rockets very quickly, which is the up part of the spike. As it rockets very quickly up, then these ion, other ion channels open up, which allow potassium ions through in the other direction. And because they're going in the other direction, they force the voltage down. So that's the huge rapid drop of the spike. And this entire process, as you just said, takes about a millisecond. Some neurons, it takes two. Some really sluggish neurons, it takes three. But it's all over in the blink of an eye as far as we're concerned. So all these ions are shuttling out and into the neuron at this incredibly fast pace. They're pumped out and pumped in again. Um, and pretty much as soon as that voltage has dropped back to the bottom again, all the ion channels snap shut and the neuron is back to its kind of resting state, where it's now slowly again receiving these little voltage inputs coming down the, it's, it's, its dendritic tree to, the, to its body. And it's that, that, that sodium followed by the potassium that's driving this huge upwards flicker voltage and downwards flicker voltage. And it's only that big spike of voltage that's big enough to actually create a signal that gets transmitted down the axon. So the axon ignores all the small voltage flickers. It only sees this spike. What it does is it takes that spike and it basically amplifies it all the way down the axon until it gets to the targets at the other end
0: these spikes carry messages uh, from one point uh, in the brain to another point we will discuss this in detail Uh, but another question uh, that comes to mind uh, is that usually biological systems send and receive messages uh, using chemicals Uh, they use chemistry Uh, why neurons uh, in brain have evolved uh, to use these spikes of voltages to communicate
1: it's a good question because we obviously we have to assume a lot about the pressures of 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 operating in a a large brain in a large animal so there are very many numerous sort of evolutionary based reasons why we think that uh that spikes have evolved um the of the three most obvious ones is that the the neurons need to send messages uh far and they need to do it quickly and they need to do it accurately so and the spike does all of those things compared to chemistry so chemistry is is a great way of communicating for the rest of the body because chemistry is cheap right? so chemistry um it's, you just release a chemical and that chemical just diffuses across some space. You don't have to spend any energy making it move. You don't to spend any energy making it do anything. It just diffuses through a volume of tissue and it arrives eventually where you want it to. But to make a spike, as we just described, all this shuttling of ions back and forth, it takes a huge amount of energy. So there needs to be a really good reason to do it. Um, and one of those reasons is that it, it lets you send signals really far. If you, if you, let chemis- if you release some chemicals uh, alone then of course those chemicals will diffuse but they're diffused into a volume so the, the further they are from where they were released in the first point the more and more dilute they get until a certain point you can't detect them anymore they're basically just absorbed into the surrounding volume um, so on the distance you have to send say uh, as I said in the last uh, uh, moment ago if you're sending a, a, a spike between the giraffe's motor neuron on its foot then you um, Sending that by chemistry alone that would get about what a millimeter before you can no longer detect the signal which is no good when you're trying to send it three meters right so you need an act you need this spike to travel along this long cable all the way to the end to make sure the signal actually gets there any other way of sending it that we know about that biology has to hand won't even get the signal to where it needs to go um and then of course sending things by chemistry by alone is really really slow chemicals diffuse really slowly calling the gradients to the concentration in the in the in the volume they're in whereas um See, electrical signals travel really, really fast, and particularly down axons, which are covered in this the fatty substance called myelin, which like spinal motor neurons are, which acts as a relay station. So they're insulated from the outside and it creates a really faithful signal that travels really, really quickly. And then the other reason you want them not just because they go far and fast, it's because they go accurately. So the diffusion of, of chemicals, the timing of them is really sloppy. So you, you let it go from some point where it's released, it diffuses, and eventually it might reach the other side, wherever that is a millimeter away, but it could take Uh, It could take a few microseconds to get there. It could take a few seconds to get there. You've got this really sloppy timing. Whereas a spike is released as soon as it hits the tipping point and it has a known time that it goes down that axon because it has a fixed speed that it transmits at. So the neuron that receives it knows exactly when it was sent, roughly speaking, Um, because it it knows that whenever that neuron sends me a spike, it must, something must have happened this amount of time ago. So you have this really beautiful system that solves three problems simultaneously. And of course, One of the tricks the brain uses, of course, is that it very briefly turns these spikes back into chemistry because chemistry is cheap. So the way it actually transmits to the next neuron along is not by just giving it the spike because that's uh, quite a hard thing to deal with. The spike arrives at the gap between the end of the axon and the neuron on the other side. And that spike arriving causes the release of chemicals over a minuscule gap, a gap that's so small that we can only see it with an electron microscope. We can't see under a light microscope. and that little diffusion of chemistry then puts chemicals onto the other side of the neuron to start the whole voltage flickering chain all over again. Um, so, uh, so as beautiful as this spike system is, even the brain resorts to sending chemistry because it's so cheap and cheerful um, when it finally gets to the other end.
0: These uh, spikes uh, travel from one point uh, to another point in the brain uh, through the connections uh, that uh, the neurons in the brain have. How much do we know about the connectivity that exists among the neurons? Um, There are different regions of the brain. There are so many neurons and then there are so many connections. Uh, What is going on there?
1: So there's some some parts of the brain that we know a lot about, at least in mammalian brains, and some we know a lot less about. So you'll see in the book, I talk a lot about cortex. Cortex is the bit that we know the most about partly because it's the most fascinating to us because it's the the most elaborate part of the brain in humans so it's the, the area where we think that most of our uniquely human things occur so that's hence why there's so much fascination about the cortex in any other mammal but also partly because it's just the easiest part to get to it's on the top so if you're going to lower an electrode down into the brain you're going to hit the cortex first so it's the easiest thing to get to if you want to record neurons so we know a lot about its connectivity um, <clears throat> so for example so in detailed uh, studies of the mouse cortex, we know that a single mouse, uh, principal neuron in cortex, the neuron called the pyramidal neuron, so-called because it's body looks like a pyramid. Um, it's, it receives roughly, uh, between eight and a half to 10,000 inputs on its dendritic tree from other neurons, which means that as most neurons, when they send their axon out only create uh, generally one on average, occasionally a few more connections on a given target. That means each neuron itself, when it sends its, output in cortex must be uh, connecting to about 10,000 neurons, somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 neurons. So a single message broadcast, a single spike coming out of this each pyramidal neuron is being sent to somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 neurons. So a very big broadcast message. Of course, it's being broadcast locally. So the pyramidal neurons themselves have an axon which which branches very close to the neuron, connects to lots of its neighbors, so that means that those neighbors know when it sent a spike. It then sends an axon that plunges, the same axon and carries on, plunges down through cortex to the white matter. So as like mass, I guess many of your listeners know, obviously our brain's got gray matter on top of the cortex and white matter underneath. And that white matter is all the axons that are going between cortical regions. So this axon having branched locally and sent a bunch of spikes will be going down to the white matter and then taking a sharp right-hand turn and going off to other regions of cortex so if it was a pyramidal neuron in the first visual area of cortex then it will be sending off axons to go to the second visual area on the fourth visual area and other ones besides Um, and then another part of the axon will be going across the brain from the say the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere or vice versa depending on where the neuron is and so we know a lot about these local connections because they're, they're much easier to study because we can take the brain inject a neuron with some dye to trace out where its axon goes, slice it up around the ac- neuron and find out where it's connected to. That's nice and simple. We can use, um, we can use sort of uh, more complex techniques, but similar ones to find out where it goes in terms of regions. We can put a- lots of dye into a bunch of neurons and find out if that dye ends up in a region or not. But we know a lot less about the connections across brain regions. They're very hard to study, not least because it's the human brain that is the most seems to be the most connected between the two sides. Um, And we know much less about human brain anatomy because it's much harder to be able to do experiments on it.
0: A single new spike uh, is usually a result of many other spikes arriving at a neuron. Uh, Each little blip causes the neuron uh, to move to a state where finally it reaches its tipping point and it spits out a new spike. How does brain ensure that it does not end up in an infinite loop of these spikes that may lead to the overloading of the brain uh, that may crash the brain. You use a term in the book and you say that the brain operates in a Goldilocks zone so that it does not crash, so that uh, it does not become overloaded. Uh, Talk to us about this Goldilocks zone and this mechanism that ensures that the brain does not crash.
1: Yeah. So by the golden lock zone, I mean that from the point of view of each individual neuron, it's getting um, a balance of input that are both increasing and decreasing its probability of making a spike. So any given neuron, when it sends a spike, the chemicals that are released by it when it transmits that spike um, are either, either are going to excite the neuron on the other side or inhibit the neuron on the other side. So on any given neuron in cortex, there is a whole raft of these excitatory inputs to its dendrites and another bunch of inhibitory inputs to it. And uh, it's, there was a a big mystery a few, few years back about how exactly a pyramidal neuron in particular um, was able to send spikes that looked extremely random. As in, if you looked at when it sent one spike and tried to guess when it would send the next spike, um, your guests would be would have no uh, wouldn't be able to take any knowledge of when it actually sent spikes in the past. Each spike was sent seemingly at random, rather than being related to any time it sent the other ones. And the reason this was a mystery is because, according to all of our best theories about how neurons make spikes, what should actually happen in cortex is all these inputs should arrive and the outputs should be quite regular. So, what was what some of the theorists realised is what must be happening is that those all those excitatory inputs and inhibitory inputs on the tree of a neuron, they must be sending uh more or less the same level of input each so that the amount of total amount of excitation and total amount of inhibition that the neuron is getting is cancels on average over time which means that um, as of course this is all uh happening on average so you have little random fluctuations sometimes there's a little bit more excitation so the voltage goes up sometimes a little bit more inhibition so the voltage goes down or sits at the bottom level it can't go any further than and then what actually is creating a spike is a random time window where these, the excitation is randomly allowed to jump up enough to reach a tipping point of the, of the neuron and it creates a spike. And so it's in this, this balance that is, uh, is the golden lock zone where you have this, in this sufficient, uh, balance of this inhibitory and excitatory input so that, um, it stops the. Excitatory input alone from just driving neurons to spike and spike and spike, which in turn, they send spikes to their targets and send them make them spike and spike and spike and so on and so forth. And so that the the, the brain explodes in a whole barrage of spikes. I mean, and indeed, this is what we think happens in, in epilepsy, that um, the inhibition is lost control of the ability to balance the excitation. And there are suddenly, is a wave of neurons that are constantly active and rea- being reactive. And that causes the, uh, <clears throat> the explosion of activity in, in, the temporal lobe and epilepsy that often causes anesthesia. The seizures.
0: This leads us nicely to my next question. A large number of spikes fail to create uh, the next level of spikes and the receiving neurons don't create new spikes. Uh, and in a way, we can say that these spikes fail. Why do most spikes uh, fail?
1: So that's an excellent question. Yeah, and obviously I spend a whole chapter on it in the book because it's one of those things that um, even many really seasoned neuroscientists don't appreciate quite how terrible neurons are transmitting their information. So it's, I and mean, as I said before, the so sending an individual spike is really energetically expensive, right? So of the, of the um, total amount of energy that our brains use in a moment-to-moment basis, and our brains use about 20% of our energy in a day, about half of that energy is just spent using spikes, at least that's the neurons, half the energy they ever use, they use spikes, make spikes. Um, and that means you would think that because they're using so much energy that the brain would guarantee that a given spike once made, it would be go down the axon and, con- and convey its message to each of the 8,000, 10,000 neurons that are at the other end of that axon. But as it turns out, when we actually measure individual connections and see how many times a spike causes that connection to transmit the chemical to the other side of the other target neuron, um, that that uh, connection can fail up to 90% of the time. So there's synapses in the hippocampus and in cortex where people have recorded from where spikes will turn up regularly and only one in 10 of them will cause a trans- something to be transmitted to the other side. Um, I think the average in cortex is in some, some areas of cortex is about 75% of the spikes will fail to do anything. So only 25%, one in four will actually transmit a message. And um, for a while, people thought this was maybe a bug, right? This is just maybe, maybe biology is just really noisy. This is, this is inescapable. But the problem with it being the sort of the bug argument is that um, the rates of failure vary wildly across the brain. So we, even the same areas of hippocampus, you can get neurons of 90%, the connections fail 90% of the time, and some of them fail as little as 20% of the time. And there are other neurons we know about in the brain whose connections to, other, to their targets don't fail ever. They are completely reliable. So it seems as though the failure is is almost is deliberate in some way. Um, and it's a big mystery because w- why would the brain generate, spend so much energy making these spikes? If it's not going to do anything with them, why isn't it going to send them to anything. Um, so in the book, I'll talk about a whole bunch of great theories about why they exist. Um, so because theorists love these kind of mysteries. They love this idea of, you know, this is, doesn't make any sense. So it has to be for something. Um, one of the really clever ideas, one I think I liked the most was this idea that, What's happening is, is actually because um, so each neuron only has a, a single way of sending its messages out, out. So it has this single axon it sends its spikes down, okay? and it only sends typically it only sends a handful of spikes at most. So even though it's active neuron will send, spend, you know, um, ten or twenty spikes in a second. That means that actually it doesn't, it's not able to transmit that much information in time. But of course, it's receiving uh, up to ten thousand inputs um and that means if those if many of those 10,000 inputs were sending it spikes then it couldn't respond to most of those inputs because it can only send a few spikes per second so that means that most of the input spikes could be completely wasted it's supposed to be a total waste of information so the um so the amount of information amount of information that could be sent by the output axon um is vastly smaller than the amount of information that could be received on the input so that, as this theory goes, the, what the failure is for is it's stripping all that information out of the input to so making sure that the input information exactly matches the amount that can be sent by the neuron. And what you should find then is that if you could make a neuron send more spikes, send more information, then the failure rate should go down. They should be the neuron should become more reliable on in its inputs as well. Um, and this is really nice because it, it, it also provides a reason why why these things would change over time. So as we know, I said that they're highly variable in different parts of the brain. So that explains as well why they're why they're so variable because certain neurons have certain um, things they need in order to be able to send certain amounts of information and they can tune the inputs to that required level of failure to be able to match their inputs to their outputs
0: let us now talk about one of your favorite topics uh, that is dark neurons what are dark neurons and uh, what is the problem of dark neurons as you discuss in the book
1: so, dark neurons are neurons that rarely, if ever, send spikes. So, these were these are a kind of a, a fairly new discovery. Um, so, as it turns out, they also they were obviously they're always there, but our knowledge of the fact that they are so prevalent has only been only been come out recently. So, the problem has been that um, so one of the really the dark neuron problem is two problems. One problem has been just um, finding them, because uh just seems understanding they there there is quite hard if they're not sending any spikes they're quite hard to um, to to pick up and the other problem of course is then why do they exist same problem as the as the failure question is why is this is the brain apparently full of neurons that don't send any information because again brains are incredibly energetically expensive our brains are enormous so why would evolution bring into existence all these billions of neurons that apparently are doing absolutely nothing um, even unless they had a really good reason to exist yeah. um so, the problem with finding them is that for most of the history of, of, uh, of neuroscience, where we've been able to record neurons, so for about the last 100 years, um, most of that's been done by lowering electrodes, metal electrodes, into the brains of animals. And you're just literally lowering an electrode blind through the tissue until you can find a neuron. And the only way can, you can find a neuron is because that electrode happens to we start recording the spikes of a neuron. So either you can see the spikes on an oscilloscope or even you can hear them over your lab loudspeakers. You can hear this ticking noise as it finds this electrode gets next to a neuron that is firing spikes. So there you stop moving the electrode and go, right, I'm gonna leave it there because I found some spikes, and now I can do whatever experiment I wanted to do. I can show the animal a picture, I can play them some sounds, I can get them to reach for something, whatever it is you were you were gonna do with the animal. But that of course is a fearful fearful bias because it means that the only neurons you can record are ones that are sending spikes because that's how you found them um so then in the early 2000s we started getting this technology to be able to image neurons individually so where you could basically point a, a fancy video camera at some re- revealed part of the brain some part of the cortex and in the neurons in the cortex you would have them have some express some kind of um, fluorescent protein so something that Uh, emits more photons the more active the neuron is so typically that's that's fluorescing according to calcium in the cell so the more calcium in the cell the more this protein fluoresces the more photons are given off you can pick up on the video camera and because you're videoing it you can actually see each of the neurons you can see their bodies you know how many there are and then you can see all the fluorescence in those bodies and you can see how active they are And when you do that and you look at it for a while and you just even just look at it being spontaneously active, if not showing it some images, you can notice that most of the neurons you've drawn little circles around to say, here's a neuron, aren't active at all. They're just sitting there doing nothing. Um, um, And people didn't believe this for a while, wondered, was there any kind of, you know, is this uh, this an artifact of the way that we're doing these experiments? Is this something to do with the chemical we're injecting to make these neurons light up? So then some, some brave souls went and did these experiments with uh things called patch recording which is where you literally it's called patching because you try and patch the neuron onto the sorry patch the electrode onto the neuron itself you lower this electrode through the tissue until you actually connect directly to a neuron so that electrode is touching a neuron so rather than finding it from for activity you're just finding it physically attach it to there and then having managed to attach that electrode very delicately to a tiny neuron a neuron whose body is one-tenth the width of a human hair you then show the animals some pictures or you play some sounds or do whatever. And when the first experimenters did that in, in various uh, rodents, then you find that in these neurons you found in cortex, much of those neurons are also very rarely firing spikes. You can actually see them when they fire the spikes beautifully on these electrodes. And you can see nothing at all. So how, most of these neurons are sending nothing or are sending one spike every uh, 30 seconds or a minute or so. So um, which is, uh, obviously nothing on the comparison to how fast the, the brain is processing the information that's given to it. Um, so it, it became, it's become really apparent that there are, in fact, if you uh, if you look at what these imaging, these big imaging experiments, we're looking at hundreds and hundreds of neurons at the same time, then there's only a tiny handful, really, that are sending most of the signals, something like um, 10% of them will be sending fully half of all the spikes. So the other 90% is the stuff I'm calling various forms of dark neurons that are the ones that literally send nothing at all the whole time you're looking at them or the ones that send one spike every minute or so, which the brain is irrelevant because so much stuff happens in a minute that one spike is going to have no effect on anything. Um, so now I have discovered them. The problem is, well, what are they for? Right, so, and I mean. One reason I wanted to write about them in the book is because we, I, as far as I, f- I feel that we don't have any well-developed theories for why they exist. Um, the best reason, the best uh, sort of theory we have really is, is something that goes under the name of sparse coding. And this is the idea, again, tied to the energy constraints of the brain, that any given neuron um, should be uh, encoding really for a very specific thing because we have so many neurons that rather than have them or together spend, send lots of spikes to mean the same thing. If you want to send a message, just have one or two neurons send that message about that specific thing. So, um, if there was a, uh, there, so if for any given angle you can see in the world, so whether it's a horizontal line or a vertical line or a line at 30 degrees or whatever, in a particular point in space, so say in the top left or whatever you're looking at right now, um, then there should be just a handful of neurons in your visual areas of cortex that actually respond to a line at that particular angle at that particular point in space of that particular width of that particular property pro- property 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 which means then conversely if that's true when you show the uh, area of the brain a picture the likelihood that that picture contains that particular thing that that neuron likes. So it contains a line, say at 30 degrees, which is half a millimeter wide, that's black, that's in the top left-hand corner of the image, and so on and so forth, all those features together. Chances that it contains that 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 particular feature is so small that that neuron, you'll never see it fire. Because you never show it the thing that it's interested in. And particularly in lab experiments, because we tend to show really boring pictures of lines at certain angles, um, or grids, or little shapes, so, um, this is really going on to the, this, this is an argument called the dull world argument that in labs we just never show the brain stuff. That's interesting enough for it to, for the neurons to respond to anything that really, um, what these neurons aren't dark, they're just bored. There's just nothing for them to do. So they're not sending in information. And the only way we find out what they would be doing is of course, if we could observe an animal behaving in its natural habitat over a long period of time, then we'd be able to figure it out, but of course, That is extraordinarily technologically talent challenging and no one's managed to even begin to do that yet. But yeah, that's one theory.
0: A very interesting and uh, very important question is that uh, what do these spikes mean? How do these spikes carry messages from one point in the brain to another? In the book, uh, you report two groups of researchers holding two different viewpoints and you call them the timers and the counters who are the timers and who are the counters and talk us through their viewpoints on the question that how do these spikes carry messages
1: yeah so i talk about these yes the two dominant schools of thought which are still really kind of the two dominant schools but they're they've they've been around for decades so I take the counters first counters as simplest the counters are. Uh, they see the number of spikes sent out by a given neuron, and they believe that the message that neuron is sending is sent by how many spikes it sends. So for example, if it was a neuron in the a visual area of cortex uh, responding again to a, to a picture, um, if you showed this neuron uh, a line at certain angles, so you showed, it, you showed a line at a, a horizontal line and then rotated it around to be vertical, and then through the vertical back to the horizontal again, so through 180 degrees. Then at some point in that rotation, that neuron will send the most spikes. So maybe it will send no spikes when the line is horizontal. A few as it starts to rotate up to vertical, it will send the most when the line is vertical, and it will start sending less again as it rotates away from the vertical back to the horizontal again. So we would say, the counters would say that that neuron is then sending a message about the angle of this line by the number of spikes it sends, because it sends the most spikes to a certain angle of line. So the downstream neuron, if it could add up the number of spikes that this neuron sends, it adds up and goes, oh, that's sending me five spikes. So that's an, an angle of 30 degrees. It's sending me uh, 50 spikes. There must be an angle that's vertical because it sends most spikes for that. Um, so then that's a really simple code where it's literally just the number of spikes sent is the meaning. Um, and there are various areas of the brain where where that's got pretty really strong evidence. So we, we can look in the various sensory areas, as we said, the visual areas, auditory areas, the some of the sensory areas where you touch uh, things, and, and you can see the neurons there seem to have tuning for stuff. So they send more spikes for particular things in the world, and the same is true of motor neurons. So the way that muscles are contracted, the amount of muscle contracts is directly proportional to the number of spikes sent by the motor neuron connected to it. So we can see that the number of spikes means muscle contraction, how much it's contracted. Um, so that's all really nice and simple. The problem is with the counting view though, is that it requires, it, it's very difficult to then turn it into a code that the neuron at the other end can understand because it requires the neuron at the other end to be able to add up spikes coming one after the other. Um, and they don't, it's basically a simple answer. <laughs> they don't, they, that's not how they work. Um, well, as we really described, they receive maybe 8,000 inputs. So one input sending them, sending them 10 spikes over the course of a second, It's pretty irrelevant because it's going to be receiving many hundreds of inputs across spikes, across all of its inputs. Um, so it's quite hard to, so it's really nice to count spikes as an experiment. So that's really easy to do, but it's quite hard to build a theory where neurons can count spikes. Um, hence the, the timers at school became, became also a dominant force. And the timer school believed that neurons communicate not by how many spikes they send, but when they send their spikes. So often this score thought is about actually when the first spike is sent. So if you show uh, an animal an image, then some spikes, some neurons will send the spikes almost instantly. Some will delay it by another few milliseconds. Some will delay it by a few milliseconds more. And that delay um, tells you something about what the, that, that neuron encodes, because the more it encodes that feature, the faster it will send a spike because it's more tuned to that property. And it's a little easier with that theory to um, to make sense of, how something at the other end can read it out because, uh, if a whole bunch of neurons are sending their spikes together at the same time, then you can see that a neuron on the other end would receive those spikes at the same time and go, ah, something's happened and I'll send my own spike now. So, and there are various, again, there's various areas of the brain where we have evidence for this. So in the book, I talk about a pretty complicated circuit in the owls, auditory system of the owl, which allows it to work out just from sound alone, um where the angle that that sound came from with respect to its head and it does that because it relies on the timing different timing of spikes between its left and its right ear so if the sound was coming from to its left then the sound would arrive at its left ear slightly earlier than the right ear and because it was sending a spike to the left ear f- faster than the right ear um those spikes will arrive at different times at a neuron downstream but that neuron is tuned to look for Spikes arriving at different times. So it, it then responds saying that must be at 30 degrees to your left because that's what I mean. When I send a spike, it means 30 degrees to my left because the spikes I receive are timed to make that take that message. So these the two schools have, have got strong evidence in their favor in both sides, and they both have big flaws. The big flaw for the, the counting one is it's hard to build models of it to understand how the neurons are reading out these counts. The big flaw for the timers is that we don't believe that in most areas of the brain, that neurons can actually send spikes with that level of accuracy. So it works fine if you are the very first neurons in the retina that get to respond to an image. Great. But as soon as you get up into cortex, there are so many other neurons giving inputs to the individual neuron that any one given input can't control the timing of that neuron's output. And indeed, you can build beautiful models of cortex to show if I change a single spike in that model of cortex, which has like hundred thousand neurons in it, then it will knock the spikes of all the other neurons off course compared to what it would have been had I not touched that spike. So it has a this dramatic ripple effect through cortex. Um, Which means that you can't send information by by precise spike timing in Cortex in in principle, because every time you slightly adjust when a spike gets sent, the knock-on effect is huge. So uh so the Counts in the Times give us this really sort of structured way of thinking about how, how neurons code. But there's a growing school of thought that it's neither.
0: In the book, uh, you use an interesting example. And this example is spread over many chapters in the book. The example is about a cookie. You see a cookie and then how this information goes in the brain Uh, how it travels through the brain and how it leads to a decision and how this decision leads to an action that you should go ahead and get the cookie so when the brain receives information from outside for example seeing a cookie then understanding this information and then thinking and making a decision that leads to an action what goes on in our brain Uh, I know an entire book can be written to describe our understanding of this process. Uh, can you talk us through briefly the main points that how all this happens in the brain?
1: Yeah, that's okay. As you say, that's a question that can write a whole book and indeed I have kind of written a whole book on it. Uh, but yeah, I guess what you're getting at is that um, the problem for the brain is is you uh, you want to do many things simultaneously, you know? so um, having uh, you need to you need to, to interpret the pattern of photons falling on your retina into something comprehensible that you understand what you're looking at. So in this case, pattern of photons bouncing off a desk, a cookie, a box, the cookie sitting in, um, they're all hitting your retina. And your your job of your retinal processing and then your visual cortex is to turn that pattern of photons into some meaningful perception of the stuff that's in front of you. So in this case, turning these these photons which are um, going to be just giving information about certain lines and edges and frequencies, which are going to, they're going to get turned into, uh, edges of boxes and desktops. And they're going to get turned into chunks of pear and chocolate and whatever there was in the cookie. Um, so you can see that this is a cookie in a box on a desk, as opposed to a, a random collection of photons that have just been bounced back up into your eyeball. Um, so that's, that's, so there's a huge chunk of our cortex dedicated to that problem. So there are We are very visually driven animals. So our cortex is give huge amounts of it are given over to visual processing. Um, So our brain spends a lot of, of its energy solving that particular problem of giving us this really detailed view of the world. And one reason it does that is so that we can recognize the stuff that's in front of us. So we know what it is, which means we can then make decisions about it, which is, um, which is really where the information gets poured forward into prefrontal cortex. And then the other reason it does that is so that we can do something about it. so, Indeed, it's thought that in the visual system, you actually process two things simultaneously. You process on one pathway through the visual system, you process what the thing is, the thing that's in front of you. And the other thing that you process is where it is and how it's moving so you can understand how to do something about it, whether you need to duck or jump or reach out and grasp it or turn it or twist it or put it towards you or whatever it is. Um, So in this example, of course, happily, the cookie is sitting stationary on the desk. So your brain is telling you it isn't moving that's a really important bit of information because it means that you can move to it and it shouldn't be moving away from you. So that's a really easy capture for you. It's not like a mouse running across the desk or something. It's a, it's a nice simple bit of information. So while that's happening, simultaneously, your brain is having recognized as a cookie, making de- the decision about whether to move to it or not. Um, and then obviously in the book, I'll talk about various things you might want to think about in terms of decision-making in this case, sort of the, um, uh clearly sort of whether whether considering of whether it's um you're allowed to take it or not is one thing of course obviously in the in the book you it's implied you're allowed to call they a the office box of cookies it's the last one you're just talking about the moral moral scruples of do i take the last cookie in the office or not isn't it difficult moral question um and also thinking about where the people are around you whether uh and uh so remembering where people have just gone to seeing people who are talking that's facing away from you moving towards you or away from you all this information is being processed by your brain simultaneously and you're making this decision as this is being processed and then having made the decision um you're then going to reach for that object in this case that cookie and that reaching is then um the arm movement is going to be generated in your motor cortex and has been prepared in the that bit of the visual system that's working out where the thing is and where, it, where it's moving or not so that's that's telling your brain sort of the the reference space in the world where that thing exists that it exists say a meter away from you at a certain height in the in the room so that's the target that your visual cortex is giving visual system is giving your motor cortex to say you need to put the hand there so it's going to generate an arm movement to put the hand to the cookie um and all of this is going to happen at about well, in the book, this all happens about two seconds. It can happen even faster if there's less decision-making to do. If you just literally see something you want to pick up, then it's going to happen in a few, a few hundreds of milliseconds. Um, so the brain does this stuff really quickly and does many things. And it does that part, partly just does that because the brain works on so many levels in parallel. It solves all these problems at the same time.
0: Whenever newly received information is processed uh, by the brain, uh, it must involve checking existing information uh, stored uh, in the brain in the form of memories. Uh, For instance, um, if I look at an object uh, and a question arises, what is this thing that I'm looking at? Well, it is a cookie. Uh, Should I eat it? Uh, No, due to an existing medical condition, uh, you should not eat this cookie. The brain must be engaging with the memories while processing new information. So, how do these spikes consult memory? How much do we know about this and is there interesting new research uh, that addresses uh, this question?
1: Yeah, so, so your memories come in very different different flavors. So, um, part of the memory you're talking about is the short-term memory, this memory of um, memory of uh, things that have that just happened around you. Say, for example, the memory um, of where you put your keys just now, or a memory of a phone number that someone just told you, um, or a memory of of the fact that uh, you pressed. Uh, the, you press the button and something happened across the other side of the room. So that enables you to link the reason. We have this kind of short-term memory cause it enables you to link things that you, that you just did to things that happened just afterwards. So it holds in your me- your memory, your mind, the things that you just, you know, the p- potential that you just caused that thing in the world. Um, and it means that also you have some memory of the, of, you have an idea of the, the continuous, the continuous nature of time, right? So things that have just happened. So, that, you know, someone just walked behind you at your desk. Um, you just put your cup of tea down so now you know where it is, that kind of thing. So that's the short-term memory. So see, there are various other types of memory. So you touched on another one about object memory, about the idea that of course having seen something, you want to put a name to it, and that name is stored in a thing called semantic memory, which is the memory for the names of stuff, what you call stuff. Um so that's that's in a separate part of your brain to the the, the short-term memory. So the short-term memory is up there in prefrontal cortex. Um and the object memory is in the temporal lobe. And we know quite a bit about the spikes that do both. So the, te- the short-term memory up in prefrontal cortex, we know that there are, you are holding stuff in mind for a little while. We can see uh, when we record uh, in animals in prefrontal cortex, we can see individual neurons that seem to have activity that lasts for as long as that memory is maintained. Occasionally we see these neurons, but more, more uh, reliably we see that if we re- record say, 10 or 100 neurons at the same time, we can see that their activity um, is, main, is bridges that gap between the thing you did and the thing you are trying to when you recall that memory. So it can last for a few seconds, uh, 30 seconds even, at a push. And when I say bridging, what I mean is that, say, 10 of the neurons will fire in the first 10 milliseconds, the second, a second bunch of neurons will fire in the next 10 milliseconds, the next one, sorry, and so on. And they'll, they'll cover the gap of time by firing. And then they'll start again in some order. And that appears to be the memory of the thing that just happened. For the uh, semantic brain, for the object recognition, we know there's some, there's very specific areas in the temporal lobe. There's like a very specific area, for example, that remembers faces. So spikes from the neurons in the face area of that region of the brain mean that a certain set of facial features is present. So for example, there are, seem to be Doris Style's works suggested that our brains encode like features like the bridge of the nose and the bit of the eyebrow or the, the shape of the upper lip or the conjunction of the jaw and the ear. So nothing like we would like, no, no features that we would draw to make a cartoon of a face, but features that the brain somehow knows about. And if neurons are responding to those different features all fire at the same time, that means a certain type of face is present in front of you. So whether it be, your face in a mirror, of course, or whether it be the classic example of Jennifer Aniston's face, um, then it's, it's that group of neurons firing together that are responding to that particular conjunction of features that is Jennifer Aniston's face. Um, so those spikes mean this face is something you recognize. The missing link in this, that, that our knowledge, though, is where exactly that name is stored, so that that memory is that face. So can, it's familiar, but that's not quite the same as recall, which is the bit where you actually put a name to it um potentially that recall is happening in that same area potentially that recall is happening somewhere else again Um, but whatever it is it spikes from neurons that are driving it
0: how research in the field of neuroscience uh, is conducted you mentioned a few moments ago connecting electrodes with neurons Uh, obviously uh, then there are ethical issues uh, that must be considered and obviously, uh, there are technological issues and challenges uh, that uh, how to connect electrodes with individual uh, neurons, as individual neur- neurons are very small. So, where are we in terms of technology that we use and that we need uh, to conduct research uh, in the field of uh, neuroscience?
1: So, I'd say we're at the moment, we're, we're very lucky. So, um, so I started my PhD what 20 years ago, and in that 20 years, I we've seen this this exponential acceleration in our ability to, to record neurons. Um, so, for decades, we could record one neuron at a time, and there was a huge breakthrough in the sometime in the late 60s, where we could record two, um, and then slowly, but slowly, because it required each individual metal electrode to be lowered in, so recording many neurons required many little metal electrodes and it's only, it's only so many you can put in the head of an animal before it's impossible to put any more in, which means you were limited to it a few a handful and slowly the technology developed to record tens of neurons at the same time. And then when the, this um, imaging that I talked about earlier with the dark neurons and this imaging turned up, the ability to video lots of neurons with these chemicals inside that were fluorescing, and that turned up and suddenly we could start recording tens and hundreds of neurons. Um, so what's happened is there's really, there's two tracks of this, this recording. So one is recording these electrodes. So with electrodes, we get the individual spikes from the neurons, which after all is what we want to know, but because they are electrodes at the moment, our upper limit, even with our massive advances advances in technology, the upper limit is about 500 neurons at the same time, maybe a thousand. There's a couple of case studies of a thousand at the same time. So spikes from a thousand neurons in one part of the say the mouse brain um so mouse cortex has got about 10 million neurons in its cortex alone so anything we record with those electrodes in cortex is is a most minute sample of the neurons still Um, but we see the individual spikes Um, on the other hand the imaging lets us now we've got the scale where there is a report um a few months ago where they managed to record Simultaneously, nearly a million neurons from the cortex of a mouse with a big, but, but <laughs> it's using this fluorescent chemicals in these neurons and the fluorescent chemicals. They're using fluorescent according to calcium and calcium is not the thing we're interested in, in terms of how neurons communicate, because calcium is just a chemical inside the neuron that fluctuates up and down. It doesn't send it anywhere. The idea is that this calcium going up and down it's going up and down because the neuron is spiking. So the more calcium there is in the neuron, the more spikes it has sent. Because every time it sends a spike, there's a flood of calcium as well coming in the cell. So that means that we can read out a proxy of how active the neuron is. So more, more it's fluorescing, the more calcium it has, the more spikes it's sending. Of course, that proxy is very approximate. So we don't really know how many spikes it's being sent it's sending. Occasionally, course, this gives us a false positive because we see a fluctuation in calcium that's not a spike. And vice versa, we send a spike, we don't see any calcium. Um, And the real limit is that it's because it's having to video all these neurons, when you're basically sweeping across a plane of light that you're getting photons from, is that generally you can only do it a few times a second. So neurons would be sending the spikes, you know, if there's lots of neurons sending spikes at 20 times a second, you're just going to see this mass watch of calcium appear every now and again, and not be able to see anything like the timing of spikes. And as as we discussed, many people believe the timing of spikes is really important, but it's completely invisible to this, this imaging. So, so we have these two fabulous techniques, which both have, um, both have fantastic strengths and also both have uh, weaknesses that the others cover. So like imaging can't see spikes. The electrodes can, the electrodes can only record up to 500 neurons. And you don't know where the neurons are because you can't see them Whereas the imaging, you do know where the neurons are and you can record up to typically thousands of them and you know examples where there's hundreds of thousands or even a, even a million apparently so that's the that's the techniques for recording lots of neurons and as i kind of alluded to there um of course we do that almost entirely in animals because we have to do that entirely in animals because all of these techniques are invasive there's no getting away from the fact that if you want to record the output of individual neurons you can't do it from the outside of the brain you have to be inside the brain to be doing it um so you have to lower electrodes into the brain you have to Um, open up parts of its cortex, or you want to record from the very surface of cortex, you can um, you can make the skull transparent and record through the transparent part of the skull. That's only gets you the top layer of cortex. That's not often what you're interested in. Um, It is incidentally, this is one of the reasons why in the last 10 years, um, baby zebrafish have become a really favorite animal in neuroscience, because baby zebrafish are see through they're translucent so you can get the neurons in their brains to express these chemicals and video them from the outside. So the animal can actually be doing something really quite complicated, as long as it's not moving its head too much. Um, and you can you can image all the neurons you can see through its through its head. Um, so this so this um, drive to record as many neurons as possible has driven us down to this just a handful of animals, so to the mouse, to the zebrafish, um, to the to the Drosophila, the fruit fly which you can do fabulous genetics in so you can you can really tweak its neurons and to so the the nematode worm c elegans which is the only which is legendarily the only uh, animal that we have a complete wiring diagram of which um still isn't technically true but it's almost true um so we have these animals and but what that means is that obviously the, the we have strong ethical limits of what we can do to to humans of course because we can't take any random human participant that we'd like to ask and say, can I stick an electrode in your head or open up your skull and stick a fiber optic into it? That's just not, it's just not possible. So the only time we get to see spikes from humans is when we have to record from humans that are otherwise um, undergoing some kind of intervention or operation for some other disorder. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of disorders in which this happens. Um, one obvious one is epilepsy again. So for epilepsy patients, uh, there's a, a surgery where you, you remove part of the temporal lobe where you think the the epileptic activity starts from, but to find it, you need to record from it. So what the surgeon will do is open up the side of the head, they'll put electrodes on the side and to leave it the electrodes in place to record from that part to try and find where it is. And while the electrodes are on there, they'll be there on there for a few days maybe. Um, some experimenters can come in with the permission of the of the patient and get them to do tests, get them to do memory tests and facial recognition tests. I mean, this is versus where the Jennifer Aniston neuron came from as epilepsy patients undergoing these looking at these pictures of faces and responding to them. Um, and that means that we get this rare chance to see some spikes from a human neuron while the human is doing stuff. And these are only there's only still only really a handful of studies in the world that get to do this. Um of course, they're really limited because they're limited, of course, to the tiny handful of time you get to have this in. And they're really limited to the few places in the brain where you're allowed to put these things. You're only allowed to put them in this temporal lobe area because they're epilepsy patients. Um, the electrodes you can put into the brains of someone with paraplegia, of course, to try and get them, help them move their arm or move a robot arm, is that electrode has to go in motor cortex because that's where you want the signals from. You can't just stick those electrodes anywhere you want in the brain and ask any question you like. You can't put them in prefrontal cortex and say, right, now think of a memory for me. That's just not allowed. So, yeah, so our our knowledge of the spikes in the human brain is inevitably quite limited.
0: Computational uh, neuroscience is a fascinating discipline. Uh, This is your main area of research. Researchers uh, in this field are trying to build models that replicate uh, various processes in the human brain. Researchers are trying to mathematically understand brain uh, without touching any biological stuff. How is research conducted in the field of uh, computational neuroscience?
1: Good, yes, good. Question. <laughs> so they come in, yes. So it comes in two two different flavours. You kind of touched on there. One is um, more like the, the pencil and paper approach, where you're trying to write down some ideas in maths, whether either some kind of you know pure maths or some kind of algorithm that you think that the brain is implementing or some group of neurons implementing, and try and work through the consequences of that to make predictions for experiments. The other approach which is more traditional computational neuroscience is to build computer models of bits of the brain. So say take a chunk of cortex and build a model which has artificial neurons in it that send, send spikes that receive spikes, that um, collectively emulate a bit of the tissue and try and either use that to understand the dynamics that you're getting, seeing in the experiments to understand what you're recording or use it to understand the computations that are being done so those kind of simulations are really useful for working out the limits of what could be done in the brain because you can build a model of a bit of, of the brains a bit of cortex and say could this in theory calculate probability say so, and people have looked at this looked at the various ways in which you can try and represent probabilities in spikes sent by model neurons try and work out ways in which it could happen or which it, which it can't happen and typically in these models what you find is simpler the model the easier it is to find a thing you can do in it the more detail you add in the more the, your nice idea goes away. Uh, but the, yeah, so, so these, so they both these areas of, of this kind of computational theoretical neuroscience, um, yeah, they're really, they are driving at a deeper understanding of the brain than can be got from experimental data alone. Obviously they're, they're there to try and turn the experimental data into some kind of understanding of what's happening underneath. Um, yes. So they, they, Obviously, the people that do this for various reasons. So we, we touched on the idea that you want to make predictions for experiments. That's just one reason for doing it. One of main reason for doing it is that you just want to understand the data. You just want to understand what you're looking at. Another is to probe the limits of what can be done. Um, another is to um, uh, is to try and explore um, uh, what, in principle, certain features of the brain are for. So uh, we touched along uh, ages ago on this idea of this. Uh, of spike failure what it could be for it's really useful in these kind of models to explore put spike failure into it and explore what it can and cannot do so for example you might want have a theory that what spike failure is for is to enable the brain to implement certain kinds of search algorithm because it adds noise to the process and any search algorithm that you um, implement in a computer you always add noise into it to stop it from getting stuck in really trivial solutions so that it moves out of that trivial solution to something more complicated And spike failure seems to be a great way of adding noise to a system. So you might want to build a model that explores, can he actually make a search algorithm if I stick spike failure into this this model?
0: And uh, how is the research uh, in the field of uh, computational neuroscience progressing? Are we developing some promising models, uh, developing new theories? Is our understanding about uh, the brain uh, improving significantly through the research in computational neuroscience
1: some people would say there are yeah but one of the problems in in computational neuroscience of course is that the brain is to give the cliche the most complicated machine in the known universe so any given theory of the brain is only about some tiny aspects of the brain's function in some tiny constrained set of circumstances so even our most complicated detailed computer models of the brain So for example, the model built by the Blue Brain and Human Brain Project, that is a 30,000-neuron model of one column of neurons in the part of the rat's somatosensory cortex that uh, deals with information from its hind paw, from its left hind paw. So that that model is extraordinarily, it requires an IBM Blue Gene supercomputer to run it. It's just unbelievably detailed, and yet what it actually is, Emulating is a handful of neurons, thirty thousand, um, in a part of the rat brain that the rat itself doesn't really care much about. It's a bit of the. It literally just takes the sensory signals from its left hind paw, um, and it's built with the data from the wiring in the brain of a teenage rat, uh, because that's the easiest thing, easiest age of the rat to actually get the detailed, uh, detailed information from the pairs of neurons you need to record from to be able to see if they're connected or not. So. Um, there are, of course, there are people with grand unified theories of how the brain works. So there's, um, so in particular, Carl Friston has this now sort of fairly um, fairly well known idea of uh, the free energy theory of the brain, um, which in, theory, in in fairness he calls the free energy principle. He doesn't call it a theory because it doesn't itself make any predictions. It's an idea about if we apply this principle to everything the brain does then it explains why the brain does it that way but to turn it into an actual theory what you have to do is go to your part of the brain in the circumstances you want to be interested in say for example how an animal learns um learns that a light predicts food and apply this principle to that problem as a way of generating a theory um so the work is still to be done in turning turning that principle into an actual theory of how every bit of the brain works that you're interested in and because the brain is so enormous that's still an an unending task so yeah so in many respects as many people have have said um neuroscience is still in this in this still very young phase where it's thrashing about it looks with um it's uh it lacks it lacks any kind of cohesive theoretical framework in which lots of experimental data could be applied to and predicted from um just simply as a consequence of the fact that the brain is just an unbelievably complicated thing. So thinking about in detail, even one tiny part of it is more than enough for one human's uh, research lifetime, let alone trying to cohesively mash them all together.
0: We are discussing your book, The Spike, an epic journey through the brain in 2.1 seconds. This is a thorough uh, but easy to read book. The humor that you inject makes the reading enjoyable really really enjoyable Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book obviously there is much more in the book however uh, is there anything that you suggest we should discuss before we close this uh, discussion
1: actually no i think um so we we covered nicely my two favorite chapters the spike failure and the dark neuron stuff where um I really enjoyed getting to those chapters when I was writing it partly because it was a chance to, to uh, just sit back and just go, look, here's this amazing thing that we know almost nothing about. Um, let's let's tell all the world about it and talk, talk about some theories about where it works, um, why it's there and what it could be for. And then really pique people's interest into sort of, it was those two bits in particular that I thought when I was thinking about the audience for this book, I was thinking how broad it could potentially be. Hence the, you know, trying to make it entertaining and uh, accessible, as well as giving some, something to chew on for the mind. Thinking about how, how many people are, would, would like to pick it up and be inspired to go and do some neuroscience research. And as those two chapters in particular I thought were trying really pique people's interest into going, oh, well, this is a big problem that we don't know anything about. Maybe I can, I can go and tackle that.
0: Professor Mark Humphries, uh, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps.
1: Thank you, Maseem. That's been fantastic. Thank
0: you very much.